Le notti di Caviria, 188 a quarta. Silenzio! Azione! Adorna Azzari, ma io ho casa mia, sa, con l'acqua, la luce, il pibicas, non mi manca niente, proprio tutte le comodità, c'ho perfino il termometro. Questa qui, sotto l'archi, non ci ha mai dormito. Ma una volta, o due. Ragazzi, vi si smonta tutto, prima non si fa più. Due giorni qua non ci deve essere più niente, bisogna cominciare subito. Coraggio al lavoro, buttate giù. Dico bene, dottore? Sì, grazie. Arrivederci, ragazzi. Ci vediamo in un prossimo video. Lo speriamo. Welcome to Cinema Italia, a podcast dedicated to the world of Italian cinema. Presented by me, John Bleasdale. Everybody and welcome to Cinema Italia. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic, and I'm joined today by David Rooney, the chief film critic of Hollywood Reporter. And today we're going to be talking about Knights of Cabiria, Federico Fellini's masterpiece. I mean, it's difficult, actually, David. I say Fe- uh, Federico Fellini's masterpiece, but I mean, there are so many that it's almost as if Federico Fellini's masterpiece is just like saying a Fellini film. Well, yeah, I would agree. But there is there is definitely some I like a lot more than others. And Cabiria is is absolutely my favorite. You know, every time we wrestle every 10 years with what to put in that sight and sound poll of the best films of the world, things come and go for me. But Cabiria is always there. I, I adore that film. And I have to say, yeah, probably I'm in the minority of liking the early Fellini where he still had one foot very firmly in neorealism to the later Fellini when he kind of discovered his showmanship and his extravaganza sort of phantasmagoria kind of Fellini-esque personality really emerged. But I like the I like seeing the roots of it in the early films as well. So I would say my favorites are probably Vitelloni, La Strada and Cabiria, which are all from the early period, the, the pre-Dolce Vita Fellini. Yeah, I mean, uh, Lo Sceco Bianco, the, the white shake as well, is one that I would maybe add to that list as a... Fantastic. And Alberto yeah. Sordi, you know, an actor who kind of too often was just relegated to playing sticky comedy. It's just so great. So great in that. Do you remember when you first saw this film? I came to it in a roundabout kind of way, a very gay boy kind of way. I came to it via Sweet Charity. Ah. And Shirley MacLaine's uh, musical comedy version. Yes, I, I didn't see it, uh, Sweet Charity on the stage until much later. So this was the Bob Fosse film version, which he famously had trouble with, you know, tangled with the studios. He was not happy with the way it came out. I don't, I get the feeling, even though I think it was never public, that he and Shirley MacLaine did not get on. And he really tussled about the ending. Um, he wanted the, the ending to be true to the stage show, which is actually true to the film, to, to Kabiria, mm. um, very downbeat, but very with this element of hope to it. Um, and the studios, he just anticipated that they would want a happy ending. So he shot 
a, a happy ending that he was not ha- not happy with. And the to his great surprise, the studio said, no, you're right. The sad ending is better. So he did get the ending he wanted, but I think he was not happy with the film. And, and all of that experience, I think, taught him to be tougher and to demand stronger terms when he then went back to do Cabaret and, and really did sort of find his mojo as Bob Fosse on screen. But um, so I saw Sweet Charity. I loved the story and I was curious about it. And I think I just went through a sort of a binge period of finding all these Fellini screenings at little repertory houses in Sydney, um, Australia. And Kabiria was one that just blew me away. It, uh, it was so emotional. First of all, so funny. The film is hilarious. Mm. Absolutely. And then it just takes this turn and the pathos is enormous. And of course, there's, you know, there's wild melodrama there, but it's always deadly, deadly serious. And I think so few filmmakers have been able to capture that balance. You know, for me, one of them is Almodovar, who who can be absolutely hilarious and have this extreme pathos that rips your heart out at the same time. And I think that Fellini really kind of struck that note both in 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 Cabiria and in other films like La Strada you know I think the combo of Fellini and Giulietta Massina his wife and his muse in so many films was just unbeatable and this film in particular I have to say I love the um the combination you know the spectacle and squalor the sacred and the profane the the dreams and the magic and then the and then the the sort of purity and and innocence of of that naive earlier time the cruelty of reality the, all these things that come together so beautifully in it so you know i probably saw it i guess i'm thinking you know very late 70s maybe 78 79 at a rep house in sydney and then i saw it again much much later when i had moved to italy i i was back and forth from rome when I was living in London in the 80s and had a probably completely un- ill-advised Italian partner at the time. And uh, wh- <laughs> while that was sort of evolving, I was back and forth from Rome. And then I eventually moved to Rome in 89 and was there through uh, the end of 2002. So I saw it at least once then. And it meant something completely different because, you know, as I got to know Rome, those uh, the, the, the aspects of Rome that are in there very much thanks to Pasolini's involvement in the screenplay, you know, that that sort of the Romanaccio dialogue, the, you know, and the, which is just fantastic. And, and I, of course, I heard that all the time because it never changes. Rome is always that that city underneath its sophisticated veneer. And uh, and I so I sort of related to it in a different way. I it's a and it's weird. It's a film that no matter how many times I see it, I am always surprised by the wallop of it at the end. You know, I'm I always get caught up in it, feel so much for Kabiria. You know, it pulls you in. Massina is just a genius in that film at pulling you in with her sort of her comedy, you know, her clown aspect, her chaplain-esque walk, the little waddle, the amazing costumes by, um, God, what was his name? Um, uh, Piero Gerardi, who uh, who did the designs, the, the the production design and the costumes, you know, the way he puts her in this little chicken feather bolero. And the, the <laughs> I was going to mention that. That's perfect, that bolero. It's amazing, that bolero. The sandals the little, with socks. <laughs> the sandals with socks is incredible. The little, the, the, hourglass skirt that is so dead the black the black skirt with the little fringe on the bottom the frill on the bottom and then then that my and my favorite bit is the the rain hat with the with the hole in the back for the ponytail to come out um you know it is just not 
what you expect a sex worker to look like. And I think there's so much of that stuff that is so great in the film, but she pulls you in, you know, she makes you invest so much in the character. And then you feel this awful anxiety creeping up when, you know, the past repeats itself. And she is, well, I'm not going to spoil the ending for anyone who hasn't seen it, but I mean, the ending is devastating, devastating and yet beautiful. The final shot of this movie is one of my favorite shots in any movie. It really is just a killer. It, it breaks your heart and yet somehow manages to elevate you as well and make you feel things are going to be okay somehow, even though how is, is unclear. I mean, just to give a basic sort of pricey of the, of the plot, the, uh, uh, Kabiria is a sort of nome de arte of a a sex worker who, in the in the the words of as, as you say the Pasolini esque dialogue, lives the life. She's uh, she's described. We see her at the very beginning as one of the urchins in the beginning that saves her from drowning. Says palamita. You know, she's one who who lives the life, which was a euphemism back then for being a working girl. Absolutely. And the euphemisms here are wafer thin because they're, 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 this is really an explicit film in terms of what's going on. Uh, um, there's nothing- Amazingly so for 1957, right? I mean, no one was making a film about Roman sex workers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it was, I mean, so, it must have been so refreshing to, I'm thinking also of like English language audiences, must have been so refreshing to sort of get these films and just like, Wow, they're just so punchy and real and, and on the, you know, yeah, there's all this showy aspect and there's this, but even right at the very beginning, you see her basically being uh, dumped by her boyfriend, but like literally dumped, pushed, pushed in a river so he can steal her money. And, and you get her as... You know, there's a line about, oh, wait, get her before she hits the sewer, the fognatura. You know, yes, yes. you know, it's just like, it's just so I disgusting. Love those, kids. You know, those, those kids, you know, that seem to live in nothing but shorts or swim trunks, and they're so skinny as rakes, they're climbing up the scaffolding. All of those things felt very Pasolinian to me. And, uh, you know, I think all that stuff is so beautifully observed. Everything around that. I, I think it's Achilia is the area maybe between Rome and Ostia where they shot. Um, so sort of halfway between the city and the beach, the, the beach um, kind of satellite city. You know, it's such poverty there, such such humble kind of means they're living by. I mean, uh, Kabiria's cinder block house is practically a bunker. You know, it's, yeah. it's like it's, it's such an unaccommodating sort of weird, brutalist structure. And the, when she sells the house late in the film, she sells it to people even poorer than her. That looks like they look like, you know, they're, they're on their, their their truck loaded up with everything that they own. And they look like they've stepped out of the grapes of wrath. I mean, the, the I, the other thing that really strikes me every time I see this film and that I forget is just the uh, explicitness of its uh, examination of the giant wealth divide. You know, you've got all the toffs of the Veneto and all the, you know, even the high class prostitutes are, are, that are working via Veneto are a world apart from the from the women doing at the Passeggiata Archaeologica, the the Baths of Caracalla, where where Kabiria and all her cohorts are working, you know they're just a different breed altogether. And you know, I mean the the difference between that and the poverty of you know her talking about some of the some of the girls who live under the arches 
at, mm. at, at Caracalla, and she's very proud of having her own house with its own with utilities. She has water and electricity, um, which obviously was not not a given for people living in in that part of Rome at that time. Which is weird because you know, 1957 was the economic boom was in full swing in in Italy, but it's so far away from these characters, so distant from them, and nowhere more so in the scenes that I always forget, where the Good Samaritan. That she meets on the road home uh, one night with his big bag of blankets and food and things. He's going around feeding people who live in the grottoes. They live in the in the caves underground. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, John, but was that sequence not originally cut by the censors and then recorded later? Exactly, it was censored after the original showing, so it was shown once, but then right. thereafter it was censored until. I think until the 80s or the 90s, I think it was... Because uh... I know when it was released in America and other countries, it was released, I think, without that sequence. Mm -hmm. And it's such a beautiful moment because you also see... The, the you will see what see the, the what happens to the sex worker in the character Bomba who is you know slightly mad living in a grotto thrilled that the the, the good Samaritan has come by to give her some food or whatever and and uh, immediately goes into this kind of reverie of boasting about you know I once had an apartment in Rome and another one in in Ostia men would give me furs and jewels and I had money and things and Kabiria says you know she's not wrong she I know her she's telling the truth she was beautiful she was sought after and you know now she is this kind of woman who is really falling apart um, physically men mentally and you know i found all that stuff heartbreaking i also think it's just great that the guy playing the good samaritan is fellini's editor on uh cabiria la strada uh la dolce vita and eight and a half oh i didn't uh, know that good knowledge yeah. i did not know that that's interesting uh, leo catozzo yeah oh wow wow i love that great, great bit of casting yeah, because he's he's so convincing. He's so yeah. I actually was thinking, oh, he must be sort of a volunteer from the area, and, and they just used him as because he's such a gentle voice and so non-judgmental of Kabiria and the people he helps. Yeah, Fellini kind of was used to working with him, and he always talked about how collegial the atmosphere was on his shoots and and post production, all of that. You know, he he even sort of used words like festoso, you know, festive, mm -hmm. um, and he I think like to maintain a very friendly working atmosphere. You know, Flaiano and and uh, Pinelli, his regular script collaborators, always talked about it as well. But I think it was not always the case with every Italian director. So, you know, maybe just got chummy with this editor, loved the sound of his voice and, and somehow identified him. I mean, you know, every time I hear an interview where Fellini talked about his casting process, it's always so fascinating that he would write the character a certain way and then, you know, start to see people coming in for auditions and and just see a face that was nothing like the one he had written or a body type that was nothing like the one he had written and think, no, wait, I can imagine this person in that role. So would completely rethink it on the, on the fly. Just just great stuff. Mm, and I love the that that cave scene that you talked about as well because of the, uh, it reminded me of the Roberto uh, Rossellini's um, Paisan. There's a, a, a similar scene of absolute poverty in Napoli with a, with a black GI. But as you say, this is 1950, 10 years have passed and, and you would think that things had changed. I mean, the economic boom is, those divisions exist and the economic boom is to some extent touching the, the because like one of the prostitutes has her own fear and they're yes. all shouting and, about and wait 1957 was the year 
the Fiat 500 came out. I think I think it is a Fiat 500, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely it is, yeah. Very cool. I mean, it was, I have to say it was very cool to see the, the new version of the Fiat 500 in the new Mission Impossible film. I, I just, those cars are such a part of Italy and I, I love that a version of them still exists. There's this, this weird little matchbox cars on... <laughs> You know, they're like toys. And of course, Italy is is still world famous, worst, worst country in the world for parking. So, so, you know, a tiny little toy car is the best thing you can have. Absolutely. Absolutely. And she, and I love the way she gets in the car. Um, the working girl who's, who's, I think maybe one of the only ones who's actually got a pimp. There's a pimp who's trying to recruit Cabiria. And Called she, Hamlet. Amleto. That's so good, isn't it? That's so good. Yeah. I love it when they all go to church and the guy turns oh, around. He takes says, his uncle who, were, yeah. who they, you know, every, the, the women are, the, 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 the working girls are all kind of, scoffing at the idea of the uncle getting any kind of redemption at the it's, it's the sanctuary of the our lady of divine love right now uh, divino more and uh they're all they, they i love that they very rudely in a way you would never get around with to now call him erzoppo you know the the, the cripple but with, it's so politically incorrect now but i don't think he has a name but the uncle who they you know they scoff at the idea of this person who made his money selling cocaine and and pimping women it could possibly be sort of touched by the grace of of mary of the madonna and uh and that scene is so great it's so fellini too that you know you've got this high religiosity of of you know people going hoping for a cure to this to this shrine and at the same time it's pure spectacle you know from the that's the lights in the church there's a sort of a light that looks like it should be at a at a music hall at a variety show that is sort of viva la madonna or viva viva la maria uh, or, or or something in in lights and it's it's just so theatrical and kitschy and fantastic and and pure fellini you know i just think he was trying out ideas here while you know as i said before like keeping a foot in neorealism and all that stuff with Rotto with the cave dwellers is pure neorealism. I mean, you know, it's so linked to what Rossellini and other filmmakers were doing back then. And yet there are little touches of Fellini, like the, you know, the La Bomba, the, the former prostitute who is living underground, you know, her extravagance, her, the glory that she did, she sort of still draws from her past is so Fellini as well. I mean, I, I love the way it sort of crosses all those boundaries, this film. And she's kind of like a, a warning to Kabiria. She's like a future Kabiria, and and also a, a key maybe to Kabiria's own character. That there's this sort of self-protecting exuberance to her, and 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 you know a certain lack of self-awareness that you just need to defend yourself in that situation. She can't. Yeah. She can't. Throughout the film, she doesn't. You 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 admire her for not reacting to how people are treating her. And then every yes. now and again, she just gets it. She she suddenly sees someone someone's face when she's dancing in the nightclub with the famous actor, oh, and she's enjoying she's herself. In the nightclub. Oh, bumble! <laughs> and when she just like she, first of all, she's sort of somewhat decorous with the with the dance, and then she's just like, eh, what the fuck? Sorry, can I swear on this? Yeah, show? go ahead, man. Go ahead. She's just like <laughs> into it and doing her mambo, and you know, uh, Amadeo Nazzari. Uh, who I love that he's playing, you know, s such a disguised version of himself, the, you know, the Italian Errol Flynn yeah. playing Alberto Lazzari. It was like, it could not be closer to his own name. <laughs> the Spoonerism, he's, he's practically. 
practically asleep on the dance floor while she just goes into crazy mode and who cares about the withering looks she's getting from everybody else in the club, the staff and the other patrons. I mean, she just rises above it. I mean, I, I have to say, I love the belligerence and the feistiness of this character. I love yeah. that she is so free spirited and so able to find joy and just, you know, on the street dancing, you know, doing her little dance steps randomly. Um, she, she, you know, she, everything about her, her physicality just gives me Charlie Chaplin. But I think that, you know, she does have her defense. She does have that sort of way of of not acknowledging. But I think it's when her mask comes down and she does reveal the yearning that's underneath all that, that the film is at its most poignant. Um, you know, and that happens, of course, in the sanctuary scene where she is, you know, she turns up like a she's along for the ride with with Amleto and his his uncle on crutches and and his and and the other women. And she's really just along for the ride. She doesn't sit. She's sort of shrugging it at it. You get this feeling she's kind of left aside her Catholic upbringing. Um, and yet when she she she's very respectful, she puts the scarf over her head on the way into the church. She uh, takes a candle. And when by the time she lights that candle, you know, she's asked Wanda, the fabulous Wanda, who I would love to talk about some more. But um She's asked her, "What? How does the act of contrition go again?" Uh, you know, she's forgotten all of that past, and uh, it all comes back when she lights the candle, and suddenly she is this desperate woman in tears, pleading to the Madonna, "You help me to change my life." I mean, I find that that scene just completely heartbreaking, and those moments where she reveals the 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 self that she's hiding underneath this belligerent warmongering facade where she's ready to pick a fight with anyone is is just heartbreaking i i do also love the other woman that she fights with the 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 other version of a bomba who is sort of on the way there the mad woman with this sort of louise brooks um the pandora kind the, of the, the grand dame as she self-identifies yes <laughs> um, I love the, her her constant abuse that she's hurling at the other women. Arrest them all! <laughs> the cops turn. I'm not running. Arrest them all! <laughs> Fantastic. That stuff is just hilarious. And, you know, of course, it, it takes somebody like Fellini to find the hilarity in something like that. You know, the, he, he really does manage to give you this, uh, this, this sort of the sublime and the squalor of it all in one in one. Hit. And yeah, he's never laughing at them. There's never a sense of like, this is a, a, a parade of grotesques that we are looking down on. You always feel like, I, would, I wouldn't I would mind spending some time with these people. They're, yeah. they're kind of fun. They're kind of, you know, there's misery and all the rest of it, but they're also, they're complicated people. There's, there's more than one side to them. Yes, yeah. I, I mean, I think that it's interesting that even though she's, um, Kabiria is constantly rebuffing the friendship of, Wanda, um, that that is the only pure relationship in her life, that friendship mm. that that endures no matter how badly she treats her, how many times she loses her temper with her, um, how how frequently she dismisses every every very, very keen and and uh, incisive observation that Wanda usually makes, uh, that that friendship endures. And it's I find their parting at the end of the film very, very moving. Um, you know, and that actress who I did not know from other films, uh, Franca Marzi, I think her name is. Um, it was interesting. I saw 
an interview um, that, again, Piero Gerardi, the designer, talked about how she was actually quite a slender compared to how she appears in the film. You know, she's this statuesque, solid woman who just physically, when she's walking along next to teeny tiny little Giulietta Massina, they, their physicality together is hilarious, just, just the sight of them. But, you know, uh, he talked about patting out her ass. She has a big padded, padded uh, bum and padded breasts. And he used some kind of bra filled with water. This is way before the water bra or the wonder bra or any of those inventions came along. And every morning on the, on the shoot, they had to refill the bra with water and make sure there were no leaks and things so that Wanda could have this, this fantastic physical presence. And I love that she's so elegant. You know, even when she's wandering around the town, she's in these kind of long beaded dresses and the heels and things. She's walking on these unpaved gravel roads in, in heels. And you just say, yeah, she is, she is, I mean, She's absolute class. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. There, there's a concept that I always come back to. I think it's a really useful critical idea, the idea of romantic irony, where you 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 can laugh at something, but also the, the thing that you're laughing at survives, you know? Um, yes. Yeah, Mozart's love op- operettas, you know, you you everybody's mixed up and is singing to the wrong people and they're singing to people they don't think they're in love with, but they're actually in love with and husbands singing to their adulterous lovers who turn out to be dis- their wives in disguise. But and yet the love survives. And I find I found myself thinking about romantic irony as I rewatched this movie and, and thought, yeah, the the as you said, there's the friendship is tried and tried and tried, but it's real and it's there. Um these people uh have real struggles and you're laughing at them, but there's resilience and there's survival. I think resilience is the key word, particularly about Kabiria. I mean, the resilience is there in that final shot, which, which, okay, let's spoil it. It's a film from 1957. If you haven't seen it by this point, uh, you know, so she has lost everything in the cruelest, most humiliating, devastating way possible. She's begged this person who's betrayed her to kill her to, to, yeah, to yeah. toss her off the cliff, which was obviously his or- original intention before he had a crisis of conscience and got nervous. But still took the money. Yeah, still took the money. It took everything she had. And, you know, she's left with nothing at the end. But she falls in with this group of revelers, this young crowd partying, dancing, singing along the street. And a young woman who could be her at a younger age says, you know, Buonasera or whatever. And the Nino Rota music, which has been absent for for such a long stretch of the film, comes back via the the musicians playing on the street. And you get Kabiria just sort of wandering in a daze in the middle of these these revelers. And with her eyeliner, which has run into a perfect black tear Mm. uh, on her face, it looks like a tattoo of a tear. And the... The way she allows her joy, their joy, to infect her in that final scene is is to me so beautiful. It it uh, you know it allows her some hope. It allows her some sense of life going on. You get the feeling this woman is not defeated. She will never be completely defeated. She will always have these reserves to draw on. You know, she has this innocence which is invulnerable as as jaded as she becomes as many times as she is abused disappointed betrayed you know that that innocence survives and i do think you know people said often about fellini that he loved all of his characters even the reprobates even the the you know the complete uh contemptible 
people. He loved all of them equally. And I think that's nowhere more so than the characters he wrote for Giulietta Massina. You know, and and the, the two, the, you know, if you talk about the early ones, Gelsomina in La Strada and Kabiria are kind of sisters in a way, except yeah. that Gelsomina's purity and innocence are right there on the surface. Uh, Kabiria hides hers underneath underneath the shield, this jaded, angry, shield. well, not angry, maybe, but belligerent. She's feisty. She, you know, she's pugnacious. And and I, that, that I think, becomes her protection. And I think that, that tear as well is, I mean, I think it's a, a theme that runs through the film of, of her also being a performer. You know, you, we have her dancing, we have her on the stage when she's hypnotized. And 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 then this tear is like a, the, the pagliaccio, the the clown, the crying clown. Yeah, and of course we all know Fellini's love of the circus. You know, he had said many times that if he wasn't a filmmaker, he would have been a a circus. He would have run a circus. And you know, he loves that atmosphere that, and it creeps into so many of his films in different ways. It creeps into the Nino Rota scores, which could be sort of circus tunes almost sometimes. And I think that, you know, Giulietta Messina as the sad clown is is just a classic Fellini creation. And she, uh, gosh, I mean, that performance in this film, it just, it, it floors me every time. I mean, I find it just beautiful and funny and devastating. And mm. I think that she had this ability to touch people. And I mean, I love the, I don't, I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not, but the story of her being uh, robbed in Rome when someone... Uh, some kids shoved her and grabbed her bag and then returned it later with a note saying, Ci scusi, Gelsomina. You know, we're sorry, Gelsomina. <laughs> I remember when I was living in Rome, uh, I used to co-host sometimes the Rye Radio 3 show, Hollywood Party. Mm. And uh, we had, for the uh, for the opening of Central Station, we had Walter Salas and uh, Fernando Montenegro on and Central Station is in so many ways a kind of homage to Cabiria. There's so many parallels in the film, but nowhere more so than the Fernanda Montenegro character. And, you know, I said during the during the show while we were recording in the studio to Fernanda Montenegro, I'm I'm sure I'm not the first. I know I'm not the first person to make the comparison with Giulietta Massina. But were you were you thinking about that? Were you aware of that? And she burst into tears and oh was so God. emotional and talked about, you know, the honor of being compared in any way to Giulietta Massina, who was just like a, a god to her in terms of acting. Uh, and that was very moving. It was really lovely. Um, yeah. I have to say the years that I was in Rome, I, I am 89 was sort of, I did not really, I, I, I started working for variety in 91 when I was in mm. Rome, I became the Rome bureau chief and, um, I did see Fellini around at, at various things. I would always, I saw him, I remember seeing him once at a reception at Campidoglio at the Capitol for Martin Scorsese. And we were leaving and he was coming up the stairs with the red scarf flying and his usual, and the hat. And uh, he said, Ma, you know, has it already started? And we said, well, it's finished. Uh, and and he just muttered something about, oh, I'll go and get a drink anyway. So he went, he went into the tail end of the reception. But, you know, I did see him around town. I would I love to walk in uh, along Via Marghera, the, the street he and Mazina lived in. Mm. Uh, and I did see them every now and then, uh, either together or separately. 
um, mostly separately. And mm. I think the marriage what, what was what it was there. You know, he was famous for his philandering. And, they'd, they'd come to a kind of arrangement. Uh, so yeah, important. but I did see her. I mean, I saw her. I remember seeing her once in the Feltrinelli bookshop on, on uh, Via del Primo, just around the corner from, from Via Marghera. And uh, uh, I really wanted to talk to her, but I was shy, shyer than I am now. And uh, I also just thought, no, she must be so used to this and being bothered all the time. So I left her alone. I also thought, you know, I probably won't be able to talk to her without just bursting into tears. And when you think of those two performances as well, they're, they're one year apart, you know? They're... Yeah. And, and you know, interestingly, um, they both, both, both those films, the Fellini-Messina combination, both won the Oscar for what was then called the Foreign Language Oscar in... Uh, 57 and 58 and uh, and Messina of course won best actress at Cannes for the film for Cabiria it's great stuff it's so good mm. and i mean fellini the original the inception the con- the concept of the character comes originally from the white shake it's a, it appears uh, briefly yeah. as a, as a sort of small uh, part of the white shake and and of course i the, the white shake I, th- I think is a really interesting film because it has so many little keys to what fellini's sort of going to go on and develop a little bit like kabiria does but for you know i always think of the i think of the sanctuary moment as very similar to the to what he expands in La Dolce Vita with the sort of miracle of the the child by saying that i don't mean in any way to sort of diminish what is in Kabiria because I don't think it's I think there's there's a certain bagginess to Dolce Vita which yes. isn't necessarily a bad thing but which is the better film is is very much depends on what mood you're in. I think one of the key things is that the success of La Strada and Kabiria particularly outside of Italy um, I think was instrumental in getting him bigger budgets and and it allowed him to paint on a wider canvas and certainly to develop his sense of who he was as a filmmaker to pull away from the neorealists and to kind of find the the fantastical fellini that that sort of emerged in in uh, to, to greater degrees as he went on but you know there is a real difference in those films but i think if you look at uh, look at cabiria particularly there are two or three key sequences that I think are classic Fellini motifs that would be repeated in 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 some way. And I don't mean repeated in a sense of an artist repeating himself or being repetitious, but I mean developed in other ways. And, you know, obviously, Kabiria being a character, a minor character in The White Sheik is one. But also, you know, the the sanctuary scene is is the blue plate, the, t- the template for um Blueprint, sorry, the for for a um for a, for scenes that would happen in later films, but also the scene with the magician, the variety show, you know, is is such a great Fellini scene that and it, and so cruel that she is there in this audience full of rowdy men. She's hypnotized, and while she's hypnotized on stage, she completely regresses back to the eighteen-year-old girl with the long dark hair, going to mass every Sunday with her mother. She's still called Maria at that stage, which is could not get a holier name. And uh, and she reveals the yearning for romance, you know, for security, love, comfort, all those things that she doesn't have. And and she is loath to reveal those when she is out and about and being herself. You know, she's sort of constantly saying, you know, oh, I, don't, I don't need anything. I have my own house. I have the utilities. I have everything mm-hmm. I want. You know, she doesn't want, she refuses to have a pimp when 
Amleto suggests, why don't you come work with me? I'll take care of you. Uh, you know, she's like, no, I don't need anything. And yet she's just been cruelly ripped off and thrown in the river to drown. So, you know, I love I love that scene in the um, the variety show that with the mag- magician uh, and an incredible actor. I don't remember his name. Um, Aldo Silvani is his name. Uh, but that face is such a Fellini-esque face, uh, kind of uh, kind of grotesque. And uh, but. Uh, and I and I there's a moment when he goes through with the hypnosis with her. He gets her to the point of revealing herself and what she really wants. And you see this look come over the magician's face, this look of conscience, where he thinks, "Oh, this needs to stop. This woman is clearly revealing something very deep and painful and real." And that that moment of compassion, I think, is is very Fellini. But you know, there are. The the other scene that I think is quintessential Fellini and that was, the, again, the template for scenes that would develop later on, particularly with Mastroianni in Eight and a Half, is the meeting with Amadeo Nadsedi's character, the, the movie star. You know, he's had a fight outside the, whatever, night, the Kit Kat Club of the event, Frankie <laughs> Club. Um, and he's had a fight with his fabulous girlfriend, Jessie, uh, played by... I, I'm obsessed with this actress with her student in being Dorian Gray. Oh, of course. Yeah, that's yeah. so good. I mean, it just sort of looks like Vorian, uh, Veronica Lake or, or or sort of Jessica Rabbit. She's sort of, yeah, you know, she's kind of, yeah, somewhere between those and Anita Ekberg in La Dolce yeah. Vita. But she, you know, she's this stormy, tempestuous type who comes out and smacks him in the face and says, you know, you're a ham and, and this relationship is terrible and I'm constantly humiliated and whatever while other women are checking, you're checking out other women. And, um, and you know, that stormy sequence that leads to him picking up Kabiria and you know almost indifferently get in the car and you know she she goes with him to the piccadilly club then to his amazing house you know this incredible villa which is such luxury such um such opulence that she's never seen and i love there's a there are a couple of moments in that that i love not just the interaction with him where you see this uh you see massina's face just change from absolute awe and disbelief first of all somewhat suspicious then she's kind of just thrilled to be there then suddenly the tears come and she's like Mm -hmm. no one's ever going to believe me and then she ends up locked in the bathroom when jesse comes back for the evening and um but the the two moments i love are when she's entering this house and she's just kind of bewildered by the scale of it all and there's a shot of teeny tiny julieta massina going up this massive staircase and she's like encountering the uh, the third or fourth dog, and she's in, in very very Roman. It's another cane, yeah, another dog. Um, it's it's just a great moment, and and you know she looks just so tiny and out of place, like an alien here. And then I also love the very cruel smack back to reality as she's leaving in the morning. She's sneaking out while Jesse is still asleep after she spent the entire night locked in the bathroom. And um, she smacks into the glass door. Uh, it's just a great moment of physical comedy, but also a slap back to back to cruel reality as she you know picks up her shabby little umbrella and waddles out of there. I mean, it's a great scene. But that I think that that moment with the the Amadeo Nazari character is also just prime Fellini that would come back in La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half. You know, those were they're real motifs that I think he mm. kept. kept 
returning to. But I have a question for you. Sure. Um, you're probably more versed in classic Italian cinema than I am, but um, the name Cabiria, of course, borrowed from the 1914 silent epic, you know, yes. considered to be the birth of the epic film, um, where Cabiria was a little girl separated from her parents during an eruption of Etna, Mount Etna, and, uh, and then later abducted by pirates. I mean, do you think there's a connection there, a reason she was called Kabiria, an homage to that film? Oh yeah, I think I think it's um I think that there's there are clues to why because she's chosen that name as her name, uh, sort of street name. Yeah. Um and arte. Exactly. And when she talks to the other uh sex workers and she's reporting uh, about her new boyfriend, the respectable man, the accountant, who's taken her to the cinema, mm. and and she's saying, "Oh, there! It was a, it was a, it was a first showing. It was a primo, prima visione. So it was, it was the because there are these different cinemas in in these periods where you have the grind houses that are yeah. very cheap, and then you have uh, expensive cinemas which show the the the." the first uh the premieres of the big films that, that and, and obviously out. she had been to movies because she at, at um the movie stars house when the dinner comes up she picks up this lobster and says what's this you know I, yeah I i've seen, seen it one in a movie yeah yeah so she's obviously seen movies but not prima visione as you say and uh, i love that the prima visione is some gladiatorial film yeah exactly and she's also seen a film with the guy in uh uh with vittorio gasman and he says uh, i wasn't in that film <laughs> so that's somebody else yes. it's, a, a great moment. it's a typical great moment. sort of uh you know oh i loved you in uh whatever and it's not um, so she says, and then she says to the other prostitutes as a sort of like to show how sophisticated his boyfriend is. And he told me that it didn't happen, that it's they just made it up for the cinema. And and <laughs> and it's like it was like a revelation to her, you know, that this was just a made-up story. It wasn't like she some sort... film was documentary. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And so I think that she identifies with Kabiria as this separated child and this orphan, this orphan-like character. And and she's not seen it as a film. She's seen it as a real story, a true story, and she mm. identifies with, with her in that way. And it's part of the, her armour of self-protection and what is so distressing about the end because the end had this sort of prologue to the end if you like this run-up where she's got in this relationship with the accountant and he is he seems to be a, a nice guy and he's oh he's almost a saint i mean clearly we should all be aware even without ever seeing the film before that that he is too good to be true, but right. he's a saint. And the, their dates are so courteous and, you know, he's so um, uh, sweet with her and kind and giving her chocolates and taking her to movies and things. And he always turns up with something for her, with flowers. I mean, I love the meeting at Stazioni Termini, yes. uh, when the first date, when he turns up with flowers and she's still suspicious of him. And I mean, I particularly love that scene. You know, I moved to Rome in 89. I first went there in 84 and then I started going there pretty re regularly during the late 80s and Stazione Termini which you know Termini station the main train station in the center of Rome has been you know it's had had a, a it's had a revamp since then but in the 80s it looked exactly like that packed with people you know watching your pockets all the time because it was rife with uh with pickpockets um 
and just packed with people. And it was, it still looked like this hub of kind of like almost grapes of wrath poverty of people kind of just going off, you know, going off to wherever they were going in Italy. And it was so crowded and the shops all looked the same. The, 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 the storefronts, the every, everything about it looked the same. I, I found that very moving to see that when I watched it again the other night to prepare for this, I just, uh, I had forgotten how much of that Rome remained intact when I was living there in the 80s and, and into the early 90s. Absolutely. And when, and when he's she's talking to the other girls about him, she's not saying, oh, he's wonderful. He loves me. Finally, I'll get out of here. She, he's, they're saying, and he doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't want to, you know, they're, yeah. they're, 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 they've got their logic, which is entirely based on the streets. And and she's like, no, I don't understand it. I don't see what, what's going on. So it takes ages for her to actually say, you know what, this is my chance at happiness. This is a proper relationship. It's not like she does, you know, it it takes ages for her to take off that armor so that when she's finally got it off and she's finally betrayed, it's all the more, you know, um, it's all the more distressing because she did it. She, there's no way she walks into this in, in a you know in a foolish way or a, you know it's take. She's been gaslit uh, in modern. Yeah, time. it's taken a lot to get her there. But I mean, by the time she is there, she is this completely raw, unprotected soul. You know, she is absolutely the most vulnerable creature. And I find the scenes where he takes her to to the restaurant where he takes her before the long walk through the woods where you have this sort of sinking feeling, oh God, this is going to go very badly. And, you know, gets it to the edge of a cliff and you see his face, even in the restaurant scene, start to transform. You see his nervousness as he tells her to put the great wad of money. It's like 700,000 lira or something, which was a a lot back then for for someone of that income bracket, especially. And um, you just see that come out and you start to feel this sense of dread in the pit of your stomach that grows and grows and grows. And it's heartbreaking that it takes her so long to see it. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I love that entire sequence. It's just, it rips your heart out. I'm I'm assuming, I think that was filmed at Castel Gandolfi, which used Mm -hmm. to be the papal summer residence and, and, um, it's a beautiful part of Rome, and the, you there's know, just the this fact- amazing light on the lake as well. And I think yeah. he actually comments on it. He says something like, "Oh, it's a, you know, what a strange light, what a strange yeah. atmosphere." I think he says something about it's magical. That's right. Yeah, well. they go there for the sunset, I think. But it's you know, it is a terrible and beautiful part of the movie. Um, mm. It's it's really really quite quite something. Yeah, and and um, to just go back briefly to the uh, to the to the sequence in the house that you talked, I I love the fact that you brought up those two points because those are exactly the points that when I was rewatching it, I, I laughed my head off at the uh, the pratfall of the the glass door. As <laughs> as cruel as the point is, it's also I mean, so her sense funny. Of physical comedy is so great. It's amazing. It, it's absolutely peerless, and the fact she that could she could have been a silent film actor. Oh, it, without a doubt, she could have been a Keaton. She could have been a a chaplain and yet at the same time she never breaks character it's all completely in character even that dance she does could easily be a bit but it isn't yeah. it's exactly what that character would dance like and i love the way she has this and i'm not sure if this is a difference in italy and american or english sort of or english language culture but i know a lot of italians who do this thing of giving a constant my, well my wife is definitely one of these people who gives a constant commentary on what they're doing 
of like, oh, and I'll put the thing over there, and this is this, and oh, what have we right. got here? And this is, yeah. and it's just like, and she does that when she's a sort of like, he's saying, oh, let's have some food. He's like, oh, a little olive is over here, and I've got some chicken. I don't know what this is, and and it's just like this con, you know, you you create a, like a verbal atmosphere around you, a director's commentary of your own film, yeah, um, and it's hilarious. just so reactive to the world, you know. My fa- my favorite moment like that is also when she she sees the car, the Fiat. That that uh, Amleto and and his beautiful uh, blonde uh, sex worker girlfriend, I guess, um, are sitting in, and 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 she is she's suddenly you know certo la fiat sempre la fiat you know <laughs> fiat is always fiat as if it's the grandest most luxurious automobile in the world even though it's this tiny matchbox, but um, you know it's she. She just has this way, as you say, of commenting about everything, of narrating her own life, which I think makes her, you know, even more vulnerable. But, you know, I just I love also how that she is jaded. She is protective. She has put up these 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 walls, this shell around herself. But at the same time, she is still oblivious to the evils of the world around Mm. her and the extreme vulnerability that she is in in this line of work and in this environment. Um, I mean, I love the moment where she's in, still in disbelief about Giorgio, the the cad at the beginning of the film who shoves her in the river and runs off with her with her bag and says, "What? What? Would he really? Try, you know, would someone really try to kill you for forty thousand lira?" And Wanda, the wise and worldly Wanda, just sort of shrugs and says, "Eh, they kill you for five thousand lira, yeah. which is about two dollars American." Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And she, I love it when they save her as well, and they sort of like they save her in the most unseemly. Talk about physical comedy, like shaking her, her upside down. down she's by the dead. Legs. No, she's oh. dead. Oh no, no. Does a corpse vomit water? No, he's still alive. Look, her eyes are open, and she immediately sort of bounces up and starts kicking them and saying, "I want to go home. Get off me. Yes, I'm going home. Who are you?" So ungrateful for them saving your life. <laughs> I, I Where are my shoes? <laughs> there's some very beautiful Roman moments there. Like the there's a young couple that, and he's very interested in running in to see what's going on. And the woman standing back says, "No, no, Paura." You know, she's afraid yeah. to see. Like it's this this superstition about seeing the dead is very Italian. I I felt like there's a lot of Pasolini in those moments too. Mm. You know, kids. Mm. There's a the moment one of the kids says, "Mami, sake morta." And it's it's this, you know, I think she's dead, you know, but said with such a deadpan kind of like, it's not the first time this little kid has seen death or experienced it, you know, right, it's right. a tough environment. Um, I also just love those shots. There's something very, very beautiful about those shots where Kabiria and Wanda might be in the foreground discussing the and the kids are sort of scrambling up this this very skeletal scaffolding in the background. I, I don't know what it is. I'm assuming it's some kind of construction that looks like it's been abandoned at a certain point. And, you know, I remember that that is classic Italy too. constructions yeah. that, that, that get abandoned midway because the money runs out or whatever. And so you, you're constantly all over the country seeing these shells of building that are buildings that are not quite finished. The party, um, but, the party of cement is always in power, as they say. Yeah. But those kids, you know, the, those kids around that, I mean, it's, I, not a very Italian reference, but they look like those beautiful Ruth Orkin photographs of of kids, you know, jumping in and out of rivers and things in, in around New York. Um, you know, it's a, it's beautiful, and I think those moments too, the the black and white of the film is just just so gorgeous. It's just sears into your eyes the whole time. These beautiful indelible images. 
I think it's so layered as well because you've got the foreground and the background and things going on and as a whole, you know, people are talking at different levels. But you've also got like the train passing in the background that's making a noise. And I think there's a sound of an airplane going overhead and, yeah. and, and there's an in, there's work noises going on. So there's just a sense of like this place is is a sort of no man's land in the middle of all this modernity, which is, you know, things are going on around and she's stuck in the middle of this little bunker in the middle of nowhere. It's really hard to believe that it's it, it is basically the same city as Via Veneto, all these posh nightclubs and restaurants yeah. and people eating out in cafe style outside the the restaurants on the on the wide sidewalk of this beautiful grand via and uh viale and um uh I think that you know it is inconceivable almost that that, that level of poverty exists in you not quite a stone's throw but certainly in the same geographical radius and uh they're, they're, everything is so vividly drawn. I think that, you know, now we talk all the time about income, wealth disparity. And I think he was showing that in, in such an, an incredibly vivid way back then. It was, um, you know, almost revolutionary because most of the neorealism films, if if not all, you know, most of them were really just showing the poverty. We didn't see much of the the wealth, the juxtaposition of the wealth. And I think Fellini shows that very beautifully. But um yeah, all of those scenes. Uh, I'm I'm sort of amazed. I wonder now if the film were made under the same circumstances, if Pasolini would have just been credited as a co-screenwriter because everything you read about him and interviews with him, he talks about uh, having written much of the dialogue then because Fellini, of course, was from Emilia Romagna and uh, Rimini. Flaiano and and Pinelli were more gentlemanly types, and Pasolini was right in there with the shadiest uh, aspects of Rome, with the dodgiest of characters. And so he knew that speech, he knew that dialect, and he, so he was writing that dialogue, helping to develop those characters. And I think all of those scenes around Cabiria's home, with those other people living in in poverty, and the scenes with the the pimps and and the women at, at Caracalla are. Uh, very much Pasolinian, you know, in in a sense that you can see the links with Mama Roma and and films and and you know I would I wouldn't I was surprised to to know that the extent to which he worked on the film and yet he gets a credit buried way way deep in the end and end, end credits of you know collaborazione la sceneggiatura you know com, uh, collaboration on on the screenplay but I guess you know by that time. Fellini and Flaiano and Pinelli were already becoming a powerhouse as as artistic collaborators. So they were the the forerunners. And it's worth noting also that this was a film that, as we said, risky for its time, um, audacious to depict uh, that kind of milieu in a way that hadn't been really depicted so much. But, you know, it was Dino De Laurentiis, a major producer who would go on to do all kinds of all kinds of stuff at every level from absolute, you know, commercial blockbusters to, to tiny Italian films. I think it's, uh, it's interesting to see that, uh, that he produced this film and, and that, you know, Fellini wasn't given more kickback, uh, you know, other than the censorship of the, of the, the caves early on. Yeah. I wonder, I, I was thinking about that when his name came up on the screen of where to put Dino De Laurentiis. He's sort of like a unique Italian figure because He's not really, you know, maybe a Sam Spiegel or someone, but he's, he's, yeah. you know, there's a bit of Roger Corman in him and there's a bit of uh, both the Roger Corman who did American International Pictures and, and the one who imported Bergman films into into drive-ins, you know. Yeah, there's this absolutely. mixture of sort of, 
genre film and Flash Gordon, and yet also he produces David Lynch films and and gets his uh, gets him financing when nobody would touch him after Dune. You know, there's a he's got a real influence. I think. I mean, I know there was a documentary. I think his daughter uh, was instrumental, has been instrumental in sort of burnishing his reputation. But right. this early part of his career, I think, hasn't been. Uh, as credited as, as I, I think he should be. I mean, he was certainly an interesting character and very different from the from the very gentlemanly kind of uh, Italian producer that was the norm, like you know Franco Cristaldi. Or, um, but uh, De Laurentiis was, a, a, I mean, the the little that I knew of him in in terms of encounters, where it was, uh, you know, very much a raconteur, very lively and uh, uh, you know, tons of stories and would pour out of him. And, you know, you we forget that you know he did how many producers do a film like Knights of Kiberia and then, you know, end up doing, you know, a King Kong remake that almost killed Jessica Lange's career. And um, did he not do what well, the very, very poorly received uh, Silence of the Lambs sequel Hannibal? I think that was. Yeah. Or, or did he do Red Dragon? He did. He definitely no, I, did I, one of those. Yeah. I, I, th- I think, I hope I'm not misremembering, but I think I definitely remember going to a press conference in the Uffizi, beautiful, uh, you know, Italian setting of the Florence. That will have been Hannibal then because that was, they filmed yeah. that as well. And they? I'm pretty sure that was Dino. That was, you know, he had a little one-on-one. I, I can't remember if that was for the radio show or for Variety where I was writing at the time. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that was him, um, unless my memory is playing tricks on me. I mean, it's confusing because there was Luigi De Laurentiis and there's Aurelio, and there, you know, there were there was a whole there, there was a daughter who ended up producing as well. So there were a lot of De Laurentiis around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, where do you think? I mean, I, I with this film, I I feel that. Fellini does go off and do really interesting things. And I'm a big fan of Amacord. I'm a big fan of Eight and a Half and La Dolce Vita. Amacord is my favorite of the of the post of the of the Fellini films where he really became Fellini. And I, I think that's probably not a you know, it's probably not a controversial opinion. I think it's it's the favorite of a lot of people. Yeah, it's sort of got loads of Vitelloni in it, hasn't it? The, the guy oh, yeah. with a motorbike who just, just drives through the village at high speed all the time, shouting news occasionally. Yeah, I love the full circle sense of that, you know, from from his origins in Rimini, where he started as a cartoonist and caricaturist, you know, sketching people on the beach, uh, you know, vacationers on the beach at Rimini. And then, you know, was doing he was doing uh, for the movie theaters there. It was, you know, before there were there were great there was great poster art and marketing materials available so he was doing sketches of the movie stars that would sit in the you know where the lobby cards would be in in the movie theaters in Rimini you know all those fascinating early early elements of his career where he sort of learned how to observe people and draw people and you know you could say that his characters always had that caricature look about them and uh you know that started there and I do love the full circle aspect of going from Vitaloni and the early films back there to Amacord. There's something very moving about, about that film and all its exuberance and, and everything. It's it's just him going back to his origins. Whereas Rome, you know, his second home was a city that I think he always observed somewhat as an outsider. You know, I don't think he was ever, he was certainly never as Roman as Pasolini was, you know, who was, was just entrenched in him in every way. Whereas Fellini was observing in his wily kind of circus master way. Yeah, more a student of Rome than a than a sort of inhabitant, really. Yeah. Well, listen, um, 
This has been a, a, a great conversation. I've really enjoyed talking to you about Knights of Kabiria. Is there any other, like, maybe uh, a recommendation you could give uh, our listeners for an Italian film that they might not know that, that um, uh, yeah, you just just any random sort of, some maybe even something you've seen quite recently? Because I always feel that we we look at these golden ages of Italian movies, and rightly so, and... Um, it's it's nice to sort of point people towards something maybe a bit more recent that has been done. I don't know about a bit more recent. I will say the the breakup from that Italian partner was so <laughs> unpleasant. <laughs> I mean, we're friends again now. Weirdly, about twenty five years later, we're actually friends again. Oh, long good. Distance. Um, but back then, it was it was unpleasant, and it was my sort of ushering into the millennium where the, the millennium. You know, it was two thousand when it happened, and. I had such a, I was so over it by the time I left Italy after 13 years in Rome that I had this almost physical rejection of Italian film. I had reviewed so much Italian cinema. I'd written about it extensively. So I kind of had a rejection of it. And now when I'm at film festivals like Venice or Cannes and there are new Italian films, I tend to be very sparing about the ones I agree to take on. And I'm no film drove me insane with annoyance to the degree this year of Nanny Moretti's film, which was in Cannes, uh, a, a Brighter Tomorrow. I mean, it was so self-indulgent, navel-gazing in a way that Moretti has always been to some extent, but he has been in more insightful, amusing ways. This way was just pure self-indulgent about being Nanny Moretti, being the most fantastic, interesting thing you could have. And it was actually dull as fuck. But uh, and just just annoying and glib and facetious in all kinds of ways. But and so I don't know about recent films. Um, I mean, I really thought that the Paolo Sorrentino's film uh, La Mano di Dio, Hand of God, was was underrated. I, mm. and I think that's a very, you know, Sorrentino has always been accused of of lifting from Fellini. Um, nowhere more so than The Great Beauty. But and this film does so as well. But I thought there was a real sincerity to it and a sense of the personal that's not often there in Sorrentino's films. You know, it's easy to see, just it's on Netflix anywhere in the world. So mm. it's so easy to see. And it's a, it's a, I think I also like that film a lot because it's the eighties. Uh, I was in Italy for the tail end of the eighties and, you know, the whole excitement built around Maradona joining the Napoli football team uh, is, is so Italian. And, you know, I think there's some, fantastic stuff in that film in terms of older films i love all of the de sica comedies with um uh with sofia lauren and marcello mastroianni um and uh de sica as an actor as well um but one favorite of mine a commedia all'italiana which i think never gets the love that it should is uh risata di gioia monicelli's film i think in english it's called uh, it, it literally would translate as laughter of uh, Laughter of Joy, and Joy is the name of the character. Mm. But uh, it, I think it has another title. I can't remember what it was. But uh, a Monicelli film with Anna Magnani in a comedy role. And, you know, Anna Magnani, we think of as dramatic fireworks, but she is priceless in comedy. Mm. She is mm. so great. And she's playing an extra at Cinecittà. She makes her living appearing in crowd scenes at, at Cinecittà in biblical epics and things. So that in itself, I thought, was fantastic and hilarious. But... And she is swindled and, and, you know, 
ends up in prison. She has this disastrous New Year's Eve where she's out with Ben Gazzara, you know, who, of course, we know from his American films, but one of his rare Italian films. Very, very funny and so much great stuff about the church in that. I mean, you know, it revolves around sacred necklaces that are stolen stolen off a Madonna statue in the in in a church. And uh, it it is a great film. I find it hilarious, and Magnani's performance in it is is one of my favorites. So I would say that is a film. You know, everybody knows Big Deal on Madonna Street and the, the classic Monticelli comedies, but Risate di Gioia is is one of my favorites. Absolutely, I've I've, I've not seen that. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that in my watch list straight away. I just recently watched Boccaccio Settanta, Boccaccio oh, wow. Seventy, and that's a, that's Fellini, Monticelli. De Sica and uh, Visconti. So I mean, yeah, I mean those portmanteau films are incredible. Yeah, I mean, they're very uneven. Some some are better than others, and some some episodes are better than others. But occasionally you, you will get a, one that's a complete gem. There's one I can't remember what it's called, and I can't even remember who directed the segment. But it's basically a taxi ride in which Anna Magnani has an argument with the cab driver about whether her dog which she's taking in the in the taxi is a lap dog or not a lap dog because a lap dog gets in for free and the taxi driver maintains that it's bigger than a lap dog so she has to pay extra and she gets into this incredibly incredibly magnani-esque screaming match with the cab driver and it, it's just the most hilarious uh like 10 10 minutes or whatever it is 15 minutes it's it's such a great piece i know you know it's it's magnani in rome just firing on all cylinders what um, more do we need <laughs> and and apparently i this was a little footnote i read somewhere that uh Kabiria, one of the one of the yeah, I think Kabiria that originally, you know, he says it was written for for Mazina, but there's some somewhere I read that Magnani was at some point considered for this film that she read. I don't know whether this is true or not. I read it somewhere. It wasn't a it wasn't particularly well sourced, but somebody had said Magnani apparently read read the script, read the scene with Amadeo Nazari and said. Really, Federico, do you think I would let some asshole lock me in a bathroom for an entire night? And she wasn't interested. But I don't know. I, I like to think that it was written for Messina and nobody else, because certainly nobody else could have played it that way. And it's the reason, reason we still love that film today. Exactly. I got a feeling Messina would make any script into a yeah a, a Messina film ultimately yeah. because just of the she she she's an actress who feels feels like she's writing it herself. I mean, not by in any sense of artificiality, but it feels like she is. Uh, you you should credit her as well with uh, a major part of the creative process. Yeah, there. I mean, it's interesting that Fellini talks about uh, he had talked in interviews about how free his scripts were and how the characters are never really set in stone until he starts shooting and starts getting the actors in there. So I'm assuming, I assumed that that meant improvisation and that, but apparently not, you know, apparently it was all like going back and working with the writers again and tweaking, tweaking characters. Cause you know, when Messina is asked the same question, whether there's improvis improvisation in Gelsomina or Kabiria, she is very deferential and says, no, it, it comes, it all comes from Federico. She's always deferential to him being this sort of 360 degree artist. And it, all of the vision is his, even though a lot of the comedy obviously comes from her. 
I talked to, I was interviewing George Stevens Jr. about the AFI recently, and he told me that uh, Fellini came to talk to them as a as a guest sort of speaker. And the, um, that inaugural class in 1969, they were all very much into the idea of the 60s and freedom and improvisation. And they saw Fellini as one of their own. This is a guy who just throws a circus up and films it, and it's amazing. Right. And so they asked him this question, oh, how much do, is improvisation important to your process? And he went, oh, I don't, not at all, not at all. I have prepared yeah. everything. I, I, everything is written. Everything is worked out in advance. And then if something happens, that's great. But I'm not, you know, it's time. Time is too expensive for me to be trying to work it out as I'm, you know. Uh, and it was, it was fun because George Stevens Jr. from his father comes from the old school, and so he was saying it was one we won. You know, we won that argument. Yes, you need to learn how to make a film. You can't just turn up with a camera. You know? Discipline, budget, stick to it, stick to the plan, all of that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, listen, David, it's an absolute joy talking to you. And same, uh, same for me, John. I really, really had a nice time. Thank you. Brilliant. Take care, man. See you in Venice.